Welcome to episode 251 of the Cooch Street Podcast. This week, we're joined by award-winning writer and editor Christine Catherine Rush to discuss some of her new projects, including a really exciting project she's working on, Women in Science Fiction. Good afternoon, good evening, and welcome, Chris. We're very happy to have you here with us. Thank you. Thank you for asking me to join you. It's a pleasure. And hello again, Gary, inevitably. Hello, Chris. I know we met a long time ago that Charles Brown introduced us and I'm guessing this must have been in the early 90s, and I can't remember. I think you were maybe just coming off editing FNSF at the time. Well, I ended editing FNSF in 1997, so I'm maybe coming on to editing and, FNSF? And finishing up editing Pulp House, I guess. Very, that's very distinctive tenure, and am I correct that you're the only woman who's ever edited FNSF? Yes. Well, congratulations on that. Well, thank you. <laughs> Do you find yourself at this point in your career looking back at how at, at how long it is and how many different things you've tried and being surprised at it? Because it's a really full, varied career. I mean, you start off writing short fiction in the mid to, mid to late 80s. You're editing and publishing within a year or two of that, it seemed. Up for and winning major awards. Then you're on to editing one of the major premier magazines in the field, all while maintaining a full-time career as a novelist across mystery, romance, science fiction, westerns, all kinds of stuff. How how do you do it? I mean, are, 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 are you a bit surprised yourself? How do you have time to talk to us? You should be writing another novel tonight. <laughs> well, the novel's nearly done. Today's novel's oh, nearly done. Okay. Yeah. No, seriously, I, I tell people I have no life, and that's 90% true. I mostly read and write, um, and when I'm not reading and writing, I'm seeing movies or watching television. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, by most people's definition, I have no life. But, I mean, how, how did you get started? How did you start out way back when? Well, way back when, actually, I started uh, when I was 16, Um I started writing uh, for the local newspaper. Mm -hmm. um, I was a journalist before I was a science fiction writer. Um, and uh, I met Kevin J. Anderson in college at a you know, creative writing class. We were the only two people who were writing science fiction. <laughs> so we kind of <laughs> huddled together. And, um, and not surprisingly, we are the only two successful people to come out of that class. I mean, it was a college creative writing class. Yeah. Um, but we've been lifelong friends ever since. And... Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I was always writing and editing. I was the uh, news director of a radio station when I made my first science fiction sales. So it's, mm -hmm. you know, it was always concurrent. And I was always a faster writer than most people. I mean, even in school, I was a faster yeah. reader and a faster writer. And I would hide it because, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to be fast. And you can't be fast and good at the same time. So I would, you know tell people it would take me years to write something or weeks to write something that actually came out in a couple of days. Yeah. Sometimes it does take years and weeks, but uh, not always. How do you feel when you look back at those those books, uh, the, that work from the, the beginning of your career, stuff like The Gallery of His Dreams and Fast Cars and all those sorts of things? I'll be really honest with you. I generally don't look back. Dean yells at me because he says, you don't realize what the things you've done. Um and he's right, because if I actually pay attention to it, then I either get bogged down by the weight of it, or I kind of freak out. <laughs> but I did have to look at it when um, WMG Publishing, which we're connected with, but we don't run, um, 
we started it, but we then hired other people to, to yeah. do it, and, and they now own and run it. Um, they decided to put up my entire backlist, and yeah. they meant my entire backlist. So, uh, you know, I've got all 400, I'm not kidding, short stories that I wrote. Up. That's a lot. Yeah, I'm, I was stunned when Alison Longuera, who runs just, WMG, said to me, you realize that's 400 stories. Yeah, yeah. Oh. That's a well, lot. I I can't remember half of them. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you segue then into Pulp House? Because, I mean, that was like the next big thing all of a sudden, you know, sort of one minute you've got a, a bunch of stories coming out. People have heard you fast. Cars is being talked about. I remember back at the time. And then suddenly there's this, this magazine coming out in nice, handsome hardcover and then a million different things, you know, collected stories, sets and author choice monthlies and lots of stuff. How did that segue happen? It wasn't a segue. Um, I think that's the thing that is kind of hard to understand is I do a lot of things concurrently and, and Dean is the same way. And Pulp House came about from a discussion we had at one of our, you know, just dinner. Yeah. And we were talking about, you know, maybe doing a, something like Orbit or Universe or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, doing it as a limit, at the time, limited editions were really hot yeah. and really collectible. And we figured we could fund a small anthology series with a limited edition. And as a joke, we weren't business people at, well, we were, Dean and I had owned other businesses, but we weren't publishing business people at that point. Mm -hmm. And so as a joke, what we did was we, Dean sketched out what would happen if we sold out the entire run of yeah. Pulp House. And we thought, well, yeah, well, that'll never happen. You know, it, it was not going to be a thing. And because Dean was an architect, he um, went and did a an issue zero, a practice yeah. issue, because he felt that that was going to be the hard thing, was getting making sure we had the form correct. And so we did an issue zero. Then we had a bunch of them, and I sent them to my favorite writers, thinking they'll just go, well, that's weird. They all volunteered to write for it. <laughs> and that includes, and I got a phone call at seven one morning from Harlan. I mean, I'd never spoken to him in my life. He woke me up. <laughs> it's the only time yeah. he calls, yeah. <laughs> well, I know. Seven in the morning, and, and then he, he got all freaked out because he said, oh, it's seven in the morning. It was obvious that he had awakened me. He said, it's seven in the morning where I am. Um, You're probably on the East Coast. Oh, maybe you're not. Oh, no. And that was the introduction I had to Harlan. Um. Yeah, and he wrote me a story, and yeah. because he wrote me a story, the first issue sold out, and in, you know, 1989, when you, or 1988, when you were doing publishing, you had to pay for everything ahead of time, yeah. before you got any mm. money in, and so we were always chasing money after that yeah. point. Yeah, of course. Now, with PODs and stuff, you don't have to do that, but then, oh my, so essentially, Pulp House was the only publishing company I know of that was funded entirely by other people's right by our writing. <laughs> we'd write, we'd throw money at Pulp House. We'd write to get paid. We'd throw money at Pulp House. It was a legendary publication. If, I hope I'm not wrong, but didn't didn't you re receive a World Fantasy Award for that, you and Dean? Yes, we did. We received a World Fantasy Award and a lot of other accolades. And you know, hmm. people in the field still remember it. I'm really touched by that. 
Yeah, I still have my set. Still annoyed that I didn't pick up issue 12 at Worldcon in 1993 or whatever it was, and the person who was supposed to send me a copy never did, so I never had a complete set. <laughs> oh, let me know. We may have some issue 12 still floating around. I don't know, because we ended up inherit we inherited Bill Trojan, the book dealer's yeah. estate. Okay. And Bill mm. squirreled everything away, so... <laughs> Email me when we're done. Let me know, and I'll see if you have anything. And I, I guess, and this will segue to something we're going to talk about later on, even at that point, you were featuring a lot of women in the magazine, in the Author's Choice Monthly series, and all that kind of thing. So obviously, you've always been aware of other women in science fiction, even when it's not been the, the, you know, the, the current cause of the day that it is. Yeah, uh, but it was never anything that I thought about. I mean... Um, I'm in the middle of writing the introduction to the the book that I'm doing for Bain, uh-huh. and um, you know I was talking in the in the introduction a little bit about unconscious bias, in which you tend to buy things or do things with people who look like you and who are similar mm-hmm. to you. And I'm a woman, <laughs> so I'm publishing a lot of women. Um, but on top of that, you know, if you look back at the late 80s and the early 90s, the major science fiction writers, for the most part of those days were women. And mm. so it was just natural to invite the women of the field. Sure. I, I know there were a lot of women in the field who were doing great work yeah. whose work I didn't get at Pulp House. I'd yeah. ask them and they'd say, oh, I promised that story to Gardner or I promised that story mm. over here or we're like, wah. <laughs> but I also knew where I um, subscribers to yeah. Pulp House, basically, yeah. um, to mm. the hardback magazine. When we did the, the paper magazine, that was different. But, uh, you know, if you're going to do Asimov's, which at the time had, I don't know, 80,000 subscribers, 70,000 subscribers versus 1,500, what are you going to do? Well, yeah. do Asimov's well, too? Well, yeah. yeah. You try and balance. But yeah. the other thing we should probably touch on for a minute is skipping across a long career in many novels. This year, you've probably had as much or more science fiction come out than as any time in your career because you've through WMG you've had what five volumes or six volumes of the of the retrieval six come out of the retrieval artist series come out how did you make and why did you make the segue from publishing with rock and the retrieval artist to 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 doing it yourself and why six volumes all at once i mean this is not something that most people would spread out over a period of time well, it's something I wish I could have spread out over a period of time. I ended up very tired. But, um, well, let me answer the first part of your question. Why did I leave Rock? Um, I didn't. Rock left me. They told me that uh, the series was growing, and it was. The numbers were growing quite well, but not as fast as they wanted. And uh, I find that very frustrating. But you, you see that a lot in major publishers nowadays you know if you don't hit the new york times bestseller list within x amount of time you're not worth their time and um that happened in that particular series and i thought oh i I, we'll see what happens when this self-publishing indie publishing thing started dean and i said we already knew how to run a publishing company so let's just not do it self-publishing let's do a publishing company and since we are not good at running that side of the business thing We'll hire somebody to then do the running, and then you know, then we ended up making it a completely different entity. And Allison Longuera now runs WMG, but um, it was a it was a great decision to do it that way. It gave us a lot of control. And I one of the things we did early was the retrieval artist book that was supposed to go to Rock, 
And I mm. just did it. I thought, well, let's see what happens. Whoa, the fans just went crazy. We did no promotion, and they picked it up, and we made a lot of money on it. And I had mm. I had thought it was going to be a standalone. Actually, I was starting to write a standalone book that was called um, Talia's Revenge, which is Flint's daughter. Yeah. And I started. I had one sentence in there that said, in my opening three pages, that said. Um, her high school years were really difficult because so much had happened on the moon. And I went, what? Oh, great. <laughs> and I, I was very stuck. I was like, okay, let me write a novella to explain what had happened on the moon. The novella turned into eight volumes. <laughs> I thought it was initially going to be one volume, and then I couldn't uh, finish it. And so I wrote Blowback, which where I thought, okay, you know, one volume, two volumes. No, three volumes. No. I started into the third volume. I started yet again. I write novellas to explain things to myself. I started a novella <laughs> called Murder of Clones, and I realized, oh, dear, this is huge. Yeah. I'm not just blowing up the moon. I'm blowing up the entire universe that I have created. Yeah. And you can't, unless I'm going to wave my hands and say, oh, yeah, and it was a cadre of bad guys and have a big info dump, um, mm -hmm. there's no way that that would have been satisfying to readers. So I... And when I first went to Allison, I said, Allison, I think it's going to be four books. And then a month later, I went and said, I think it's going to be five. And she said, why don't we wait and put it on the schedule when you're done? And I said, good idea. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I kept writing and writing. And I got to, oh, I think the four, fifth book. I'm halfway through the fifth book, which I thought was going to be the last one. And I realized I was summarizing again. And so I went back and I wrote Search and Recovery. Um, which explained a whole bunch of stuff. And so I was half working in the old traditional model yep. and half working in the new model where you can put out all these books. In the old traditional model, if I had done it in in all, you know, through WMG, I probably would have put Search and Recovery out before Blowback. But I, there was no way to do that. So I just nope. decided, okay, these are all coming out, and they're going to come out one right after the other so that, the readers aren't going to have to reread to remember everything that was going to happen in between. And yeah, and then readers can choose. They could choose to read one a month or they could choose to read, um, you know, one a year if they wanted to, or they yeah. could, you know, choose to read half of them. Publishing equivalent of binge watching. You can, you, you, yes. know, you, you can, you can watch a series one a week if you want to, or you can sit down for, you know, 47 hours and watch them all. Uh, but but I have a question about when you return to a to, to a series like this, uh, where you've got a setting that has all kinds of possibilities. But is it the setting and the possibilities that draw you back, or do you find yourself just in love with some of your characters and you want to go back and see them some more? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. It the characters are always the most important thing to me. Absolutely, the characters. Um, and then they they tell me what their stories are, and I get intrigued. Or I often write a story. That's a sidebar story to explain something to myself and say, whoa, that character turns out to be really interesting. But to me, a character is nothing without their setting. I think we'd all be different people if we were raised in a different time period or raised somewhere else. Um, so the setting is equally important. So they're, they are equally balanced. The plots interest me less, but they come from character. So once I get going, yeah. I, I write into the, what's called into the dark. I don't know what's happening, which is the other reason I had to do all that last part together and sort it around. I write out of order and I write into the dark and um, I, it, it, uh, I often stump myself and that makes it harder but 
you know, eventually I figure it out. And sometimes when I figure it out, I have to go back and plant, you know, the whole checkout thing. I have to plant the gun in Act 1 that I made go off in Act 3. I have to go back and go, oh, there was no gun in Act 1. We better add it. (laughs) So you write... Just a a parenthesis to that. Did did you ever surprise yourself by finding out that you had planted the gun back in Act 1 and you didn't even know what it had been for back then? Oh, yeah. I wrote a series of books called The Fae. And Mm -hmm. on, I think, page two of the Fay, I put in something that I kept trying to take out as a writer. Uh I just kept trying to take it out. And I went, no, it's got to stay. And in the middle of book two, and I can't tell you what it is, there's this huge surprise in the Uh Fay, And I thought, oh, I hadn't set that up. And I went back to the first book, and there was that sentence (laughs) that I couldn't take out. It's kind of scary. It, you know, I call it mystical writer's talk, but obviously the subconscious knows way better than I do consciously mm-hmm. yeah. what it's doing. One of the obvious questions to ask, I guess, is you write three quarters of a million words of the retrieval artist in fairly compact period of time. You get six books come out this year alone. How do you get them to the attention of readers? And obviously there was a dedicated audience for the series already, and they're going to follow along, which is rewarding and encouraging in and of itself. But how do you get that to new readers as well? Well, I'm hoping there'll be word of mouth. I mean, word of mouth generally works, but um, WMG works as a traditional publishing company, so they sent all the books out for review. Uh, they did all the traditional stuff that you do. There have been ads everywhere. There's been all the stuff that, that happens. Um, and now, apparently, because I'm hands off on this part, I don't know, I'm just writing the stuff. Yeah. They're, now that it's done, they're doing this huge, um, promotion reader based, you know, things yeah. like, um, uh, Goodreads stuff and BookBub stuff that I don't know anything about, but they're, it's in the works, it's planned. In fact, they were more excited about doing the post, uh, series sure. publicity than they were about doing the pre-series publicity. So hmm. we'll see. The thing that I found very gratifying was that because I am connected to WMG, I could see the numbers in real time. And each book in the series had more pre-orders than the previous book, which but, means that they'd finish and then yeah. they'd pre-order the next one and then they'd keep going. So, you know, I figured that would be the, the thing that would tell me whether or not I had done something right or wrong. Yeah. If the numbers went down, I was screwing up. And if the numbers went up, then the readers really liked what I was doing. So you're finding the that the potential shift or occasional shift from traditional publishing to less traditional publishing is being worthwhile and rewarding? Very worthwhile and rewarding. And, yeah. you know, if there's something I don't like, I can fix it. Um, it happens in a, in a quicker period of time. Um, and it gives me freedom. I think that's the thing. I'm, I am such an eclectic writer. I write, I didn't even know what a genre was until Kevin explained it to me in college. (laughs) So, you know, I, I mix genres. I write stuff. Most of my career, I have tons. One of the reasons I have so many books that came out recently is there were an awful lot of books that publishers, traditional publishers said, I love this. I don't know how to market it. What is it? Mm. Is it science fiction? Is it mystery? Is it romance? Is it, what is it? Because I would fall right in the middle of both genres. I guess the other thing that occurs to me is it must be very valuable having the WMG infrastructure there that's run by somebody else. I mean, there's a lot of talk about self-publishing and the value of self-publishing, and I've got no criticism of self-publishing, but it has a great work 
impost on you if you self-publish. You've got to oversee the editorial process with somebody or do it yourself. You've got to design books. You've got to market books, all this sort of thing. How valuable is it not having to do that yourself? I do some of it myself. That's the nice thing is that I can do the stuff I'm good at by myself. Mm. Um, it turns out that I'm better at marketing than almost anybody WMG has ever hired. <laughs> so, you know, rather than saying to somebody, hey, do this, I'll just do it. Okay. Or, you know, I'll find somebody who will do it for me. I'm really good at writing ad copy and all of that stuff. But if you want me to design a cover, well, stick figures are us, man. I <laughs> can't do it. Um, you know? So, yeah, you're right. There's yeah. this, this burden. And I think a lot of writers who are, it's, it's better to call it indie publishing because yeah, you're really sure. running a small independent publishing company. Yeah. Even if you're, if you're doing it right yourself, even if you're doing one book a year, you should be hiring copy editors. You should be hiring some kind of content editor, not to rewrite you, but just to tell you that if the guy put on his shoes on page 21, that, you know, he put them on again on page 50, but he never took them off. Yeah. You know, somebody who says, yeah. This whole entire section makes no sense. You need somebody like that. Yeah. You need to help designing a cover and you need help getting some of the marketing done. So you can hire that yourself. And, um, it's worthwhile. It really is. Yeah. Uh, there are, there are projects like this women in science fiction editing project I'm going back to traditional publishing for. And I love having my short sure. fiction published by other markets. I just yeah. love it. Yeah. Um, it's, I think my first love really. So, you know, I'm kind of, I'm more of a hybrid writer. I like my feet in both camps. Yeah. So <laughs> let me ask this then. You're sitting around writing three quarters of a million words of retrieval artist. You've got, you, <laughs> you, you making that sound so. <laughs> My goodness, that's a lot of work. It isn't. Well, that's it. It's a lot of work. These these six novels uh, that came out this year. You've, you're 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 running a, your life. You're writing other things, and then with nothing else to do, out of the blue, you decide to edit an anthology of science fiction by women for Bane. Where did that come from? Oh my. It, again, it's not out of the blue from my perspective, but, uh, you know, I love hearing yours because, yeah, it must seem that way. It's like Chris seems really busy, and then she adds this on top of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, but it, it, for me, I, um, it's a bit of a long story, hmm. uh, so bear with me. Sure. Uh, Dean and I teach. We teach professional writers um, how basically continuing education or how to move to a new genre hmm. or something like that. So we do a lot of in-person teaching, and they're writers who have already been established. And it, I was hearing from some of these writers who got started in this century that they would say things like, there are no women in science fiction, present company excluded. And, you know, the first woman who said that to me didn't even say present company excluded. And I looked at her and I said, what am I, chopped liver? I mean, I actually said that. And then it <laughs> yeah. turns out that Eleanor Arneson has written an essay for, for yeah. uh, Strange Horizons titled, What Am I, right. chopped liver? Yeah. Um, what? Yeah. And so it was like, but, you know, that was the first thing. And and I, I'll be honest with you, the, the first person who said this to me, not the brightest bulb in the chandelier. Um, and so I just kind of dismissed it and thought, well, you're not real bright. So therefore, you know, you just didn't notice. And then more and more people started saying this to me. And I thought, this is really weird. Why are people telling me and why is it showing up in the media that, like 2014 was the year of women. They finally managed to break into science fiction. No, and I would say to women and women writers mostly. It wasn't mostly women, not 
generally the male writers, I don't think they care, to be honest with you. Um, but they wouldn't say this. So I would say, well, what about Connie Willis? You know, what about Andre Norton? What about, they'd all heard of Ursula. Okay. But they hadn't heard of, like, when they started That's, telling me they hadn't yeah. heard of Andre Norton, I'm like, what is this about? This is weird. And then, um, I started looking around. I, and I, in 2013, I was teaching a class for professional writers, the first one I'd ever taught on how to write science fiction. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just get a group. Because these women had said this to me, I'll just give them one of these anthologies about what women are writing and realized that all the stories I wanted, like Pat Murphy's Rachel's and Rachel in Love and, you know, some stories that I consider absolutely essential to just reading, whether they were written by a man or a woman, weren't in print. And there was this whole gap. You remember when Isaac and Marty Greenberg, Isaac Asimov and Marty, yeah, yeah. Marty Greenberg used to edit the uh, Hugo Award winners and, the, and all of that? Those volumes quit when Isaac died. The last one was put out, finished by Connie in 2000, or in 1992. And so none of those existed. Publishing changed a lot in that time period, so there weren't all these curated anthologies that existed. Um, and so finding the classic stories were really hard. And, and then the, the best ofs, for the most part, up until like the early 2000s, did not include more than, you know, if there were 25 stories in a volume, five of them were by women, even if the women dominated the awards lists in that period mm. of time. And so you couldn't find these stories anywhere. And I said, okay, this could be why young writers, they would look back, they didn't have access to the magazines, and so they would see that, yeah, you know, there were only five women out of 24, 25 stories. Yeah, of course there were very few women. And then on top of it, I went, so I thought, yeah, for some other reason, I went to Wikipedia, and there was this page. I put in women in science fiction. Nothing came up. What came up was women in speculative fiction. And it listed all the writers who are working in, in the 21st century, who started in the 21st century. You know, oh. not, but they, and then it listed, uh, James Tiptree, Jr. It listed, um, uh, Ursula and Nancy Kress. And that was it. Yeah. Before the year 2000. That was it. And I was like, wait, what? No wonder these writers didn't think there were women involved. Um, and so on top of all of that, um, in January, the announcement came out that Charles Coleman Finley became editor of FNSF. And mm -hmm. in the write-up for that, Locus didn't even include my name as editor of FNSF initially. Yeah. And so I, I mean, I... I, I've had some issues in the past with my history with FNSF that are behind the scenes, so I just went livid. I mean, I went from calm to really mad within like three seconds and uh, posted on Facebook, you know, this is how women get ignored, um, and then enlisted the link. And as I was posting, or just after I finished, I realized, you know, I, I should really deal with this directly. So I picked up the phone, called Liza, and said, what the heck? And she mm -hmm. said... Because I figured it had come out of the press release, to be really honest yeah, with you. Yeah. That wouldn't have surprised me. Um, and, and it wasn't, it wasn't Charles at all. He had nothing to do with this. Um, mm. and so I just picked up Liza. I expected her to tell me it was in the press release and they had copied the press release verbatim. Instead, she said that the person who wrote the article and the people who copy edited it hadn't noticed that I was missing. I went, wow. What? I would rather have had it be something in the press release um, because they should have noticed this. And so I was still kind of mad and I thought, you know, 
the problem here is not that people are discriminating against women. The problem is that women's history in the science fiction field is being lost for a whole variety of reasons that are interconnecting. You know, the anthologies don't exist anymore. The best of always get put to bed before the award lists come out. So even if women dominate the awards, that doesn't necessarily mean that whoever edited the best of thought they were the best stories of the year. You know, that, that kind of stuff always happens. And then there is all of this kind of, well, there's actually a term for it in business called unconscious bias, sure. as I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And so there's that unconscious bias going on as well. Uh, okay, well, the best corrective is to just put out an anthology that I can give to my students and say, look, if you think there are no women writing, here, here's Andre Norton, here's Lois McMaster Bujold, here's Connie Willis, here's C.J. Cherry. You know, and so I, I thought, I'm not even going to go to Tor. I'm going to go to a woman who's in the field, who's been in the field as long as I have, who works really hard in the field and never gets any credit. I'm going to Tony. I'm going to Tony yeah. Weisskopf, Bain. And, and she has, what Bain does is they publish directly to the hardcore fans of science fiction. They have an incredible following of readers in science fiction. Mm -hmm. People who are not necessarily at conventions and stuff, but they just love science fiction. And I said, these are the people I want to reach. And so let's mm -hmm. go there. And I sat down across from Tony at Kevin's Superstars. Kevin keeps coming back in. Um, mm -hmm. we were at the Superstars conference and I mentioned it to her and she was, as furious as I was, because she'd been watching all of this women don't exist in science fiction, and there she is, the publisher of a major science fiction house. Um, and so we commiserated about that for a while, and then um, I said, how about we do this anthology? And she said, what a great idea. And she said, write me up a proposal. And I did, and I have this project. <laughs> And the web, we should mention that the website is up now and people can go look at womeninsciencefiction.com and start finding out some of these names. But, but when you talk about in, in, uh, people being erased, I, I, I think there are a couple of issues. One is that there's a lot of material and there have been a number of anthologies that are focused specifically on feminist science fiction, which is only a slice of what women actually do in science fiction. And uh, when you were talking about being erased from the history of FNSF, one of the editors that I've been trying to promote, I did an essay on this for the Cambridge Companion to Science Fiction, but decades before you were at S uh, FNSF, Seal Goldsmith was editing Amazing yes. and discovering Thomas Dish and J.G. Ballard and Ursula Le Guin, and it, it, was, it was the new wave in the United States before the new wave had been announced by, by Moorcock even, and you never hear Seal Goldsmith's name anymore either. You don't hear Judy Merrill either, and she edited... Speaking of best of, you, she edited yeah, the best of anthologies for a very long time. Um, you Judy, know, Judy's name does come up from time to time. It does. I mean, but we, there are knowledgeable people in the fan in the field. Like the watcher, but on yeah. the other hand, I guess none of her anthologies are in print. And this this is the yeah. issue, I guess, that you're talking about because one of the obvious questions that occurs to me is off the cuff, and then maybe because I pay attention to anthologies because it's what I do. You sit there and go, well, hang on, do we not need another solo anthology of women in science fiction when we have, you know, three volumes of Women in Wonder, and we have Daughters of Earth, and we have Sisters of the Revolution, and we have the Mammoth Book of Women in Science Fiction, which only came out last December. You know, it's like, is this one of those things which, well, first of all, is this one of those things which we have to do over and over again until it sticks? And how is the book that you want to do different from what they were trying to do? 
Two very good questions. I'm beginning to think the answer to your first question, is this something we have to do over and over again until it sticks, is yes. Um, one of the sources that I cite in what I'm writing right now for the introduction to this is an essay Connie Willis wrote for Asimov's in 1992 called The Women That SF Doesn't See. Uh And, you know, because she's Connie and because she's such a fantastic writer, she managed to say in probably 2,000 words what I'm trying to say in this entire book, okay? (laughs) She's just that much better than I am at this stuff. Um, But there it is. There it was. There it is again, you know. Women of Wonder has been out of print since the early 90s. Um, The Mm. initial very influential volumes that Pam Sargent did... um, went out of print in the 80s, and then she did another one in the 1990s. Um, the problem with the volumes that have come out since um, Pam's work, um, they've all been feminist-oriented science fiction, as if women write the same thing over and over. We all write about gender, and we all write about um, all of this mm-hmm. other stuff. Both Connie and I have had the experience of being told we don't write women. We, we're not really women in science fiction. I don't know what we are. But because we generally don't write women's issues, we're not considered women in science fiction, which is just mind-boggling to be told that. Um, So, you know, the feminist slant is fine, but women write space opera. Women write... You're you're seeing the same stories reprinted over and over and over again. So, But isn't part of it, though, that just the act of a woman writing science fiction and publishing it, isn't that in itself feminist? Even if, even if, even if their subject matter isn't overtly feminist. I mean, and we say that the same stories are published over and over again, but quite often when you actually get down to the nub of it, I mean, the stories themselves aren't deliberately overtly feminist. Yes, they are written by women, which is a feminist action, and yes, the things they're about may be of interest to women, but they're interest to readers generally. Yes, and that's one of the things... Do you need a pause? There was one, no. Okay, that's, uh, that's one of the things that, um, you know, I, I was looking at with this whole thing. I, I was kind of resisting doing a new anthology of uh-huh. this stuff. But I thought, no, but how do I make it different? Do I reprint the same old stories, you know, Tip Tree's The Women That Men Don't See, um, Octavia's Blood Child, uh, you know, um, something by Ursula that, there's generally, you know, the same old stories. If we reprint a Connie, it's even the Queen. Um, yeah, yeah, it's not. Yeah, that's not the, the direction I, I decided to go. So the direction I decided to go was to show that women can write every subgenre of science fiction, and that you know, we we don't necessarily have to have. It's it, it in the essay. What I one of the things I actually said is that Pam Sargent. I think Women of Wonder is exceptionally important, and one of, and it was a really she did it in the 1970s as a corrective um, because mm-hmm. all these co- collectible or all of these compilations were coming out of uh, you know science fiction of the 30s, science fiction of the 40s, and they had no women in them. And so Pam did a corrective volume showing that women were also mm-hmm. writing at the same time. The problem is is that most anthologists since have looked at it as a prescriptive volume, that women should only write about women, because this is what Pam said, she wanted uh, women writing about women, because there were two problems in the 1970s with the volumes that she was trying to correct. The one was that women didn't have any bylines, and the other one was that it was the companion, the love interest thing, that women only showed up in those stories as, you know, the hero's love interest. So she wanted to have adventurous women written by women. And so, and then it just became a thing. 
every anthology, it seemed, had you had to have a female point of view, and you had to have a woman writing a female point of view, or a a gender bending point of view where you're dealing with more than one gender or, or, you know, questioning gender issues or something like that, which automatically rules out. I, I mentioned Lois. It automatically rules out her Miles, and I'm not even going to try to say his last name because she's told me how to say it and I can't, her Miles series, um, because she writes a lot of those stories from the point of view of a man. So you can't, you don't even put them in. Um, it rules out a lot of CL Moore. It rules out much of Lee Brackett. And mm-hmm. it's not the direction you want to go. So I thought, let's just well, actually, put in... The only thing these women have in common in, in the volume I'm putting together is that they happen to be women who are highly decorated and or best-selling and or extremely influential mm-hmm. writing science fiction. Okay. That's it. Well, and, and, yeah, the one time uh, I mentioned this to Jonathan just before we were recording, that I, I only met Andre Norton once and... It was at an academic conference where somebody had, had was giving an academic paper on her as a proto proto feminist science fiction writer based on things like Starman's Son from the early fifties. She was actually a little bit offended at that um, because she thought that, no, this was, she was not writing proto feminist science fiction. She was writing science fiction adventures for boys. That's why she had her name changed to Andre. She wanted to be thought of as a professional science fiction writer, and in a weird way. Her feminist act was refusing to be classified as a feminist. It's not weird. It's it's very generational. Um, mm-hmm. Those of us who are older, um, I'm not nearly as old as Andre was, but um, it's not about being a feminist or being a woman doing something. It's about being part of the club. It's about being yeah. an equal member in the club, gender be damned. Um, and so, you know, you are the same as a guy. You're not there because you're a woman. You're there because, you know, you're, you're not, you're just there. Um, Andre Norton, by the way, um, from what I understand is that she took on the name in the thirties, 20 years before she wrote science fiction because she was writing adventure fiction for boys. Um, right. and so, you know, she then turned to science fiction in the fifties. And, uh, boy, she was writing fantastic science fiction. I, I can still remember the day when I found out she was a woman. I, I spent my 12th summer reading everything that she wrote. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, then I picked up Witch World, and there was her picture on the back. And I remember staring at it. And I wasn't shocked yeah. that, you know, oh, good, girls can write science fiction. It was more like, oh, I thought that was a guy. Let me ask, is there a further problem that's faced by... Women have been in science fiction for a long time where there's an obvious problem that people can filter out achievements of women in science fiction. But what about older people in science fiction as well? So people have been around a long time. So when you, I, I look around, I think that Kate Wilhelm, Sherry Tepper, Julian May, any one of a number of people, just because they are older as well, Kit Reid, we were talking about earlier on, um, yeah. all just get filtered out and disappeared when people talk about women in science fiction and there's a very dedicated group of people and i they're admirable who are talking about feminist in science fiction so you talk about joanna russ and uh right. james tiptree but when it comes to um these other people uh you know like russ sorry so like may like marion Silver bradley whoever they just get forgotten mm. yeah they get forgotten inside the field their fans don't forget them that's the fascinating thing their books are selling that's the thing we forget those of us who are really in the center of the science fiction field, 
have to remember there are readers out there who've never been to a convention. There are readers mm. who buy books who don't even know that science fiction is a thing. Um, so they just buy books. And so those books still sell. You know, MZB, Marion Zimmer Bradley's books sell. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Anne McCaffrey's books are selling to people who are other than people who come to conventions. So you have that going on. But I think there's a couple of things at play here when you're talking about ageism is really what you're talking about. Yeah. It's, um, it's, uh, how, how do I want to express this? It doesn't just happen to women. It happens to women and men. And it happens for a couple of reasons. Let me give you the first reason. And then I'm going to, I've got the second reason too. The first reason is, that I remember being um, an anthologist, you know, starting out with Pulp House, and I told you I sent out issue zero to all my favorite writers. And I remember Dean saying to me, um, are you sure you want to do that? And you don't necessarily want to bother these people. <laughs> you know, they're such mm-hmm. big names. And that's what he was coming from. He was coming from the, oh, my goodness, you're, you're sending a book to Jack Williamson, whom I personally knew. He was a teacher of mine. And he said, mm-hmm. you know, Jack won't write for you. He's He's just, you know, he, he's got so much to do. He's so famous. Um, and I, you know, that, that feeling still crops up for me as a, a reader because sure. I was a reader first. I couldn't speak to Ray, poor Julius Schwartz of DC Comics introduced me to Ray yeah. Bradbury, I think six times. And I was never able to say a <laughs> word to Ray Bradbury. I was always kind of like speechless. And poor Dean had to sit and talk to him while Julie and Dean are talking to Ray Bradbury, and I'm going, ah, 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 um, and I couldn't get a word out edgewise. So but I think, I think the I, generational I, I, thing, to follow yeah, up so on I, your generational thing, uh, there, there is a sense in which younger readers have maybe never been exposed, obviously have been exposed to Bradbury. An example, um, three or four years ago, Catherine McLean showed up at ReaderCon outside of Boston in Burlington, and uh, immediately David Hartwell came and, and got me and John. People roughly my age or close to it were thinking, we were gasping, this is Catherine McLean, uh, who I never thought I would ever meet. I wasn't even sure she was still alive, to be honest. But all the people that were gathered around her, genuflecting as we should have, were over 50. Yes, younger people she's not in print. Had, she's not in print. Nobody who, nobody who had not read her as a kid knew who she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that and, whole thing. You, you segued beautifully into my second point on what's going on with the generational thing, which is... In the 90s, publishing changed. Um, the business of publishing changed. Uh, it became, because of the collapse of the distribution system and because of a whole bunch of other things that happened, traditional publishers found that they had to, for a period of about two years, publish only bestsellers in order to get their books into various venues. And then that became kind of the bestseller mentality. You know, that, right. that every book had to be a bestseller, which is what hit my Retrieval Artist series. Um, but on top of it, it also hit the whole velocity. The traditional publishing model is based on velocity. Your book comes out, it sells a right. lot of copies quickly, and then it goes away. Um, and books have gone swiftly out of print in the last 20 years, as opposed to when we were kids, books stayed in print for a very, very, very long time and had a long time to build an audience. So that kind of reinforces the whole generational thing, exactly what you said about Catherine McLean. Um, you can't find her books. There are books that were published that have won awards or were bestsellers 20 years mm-hmm. ago that aren't in print anymore. I was kind of stunned as I'm going through all of this to find you know, I would have to either look in Bill's old collection or I'd have to order something off of Amazon that was, you know, from some bookstore or somewhere else just to get a copy of it. Um, my biggest problem with this Women in Science Fiction project 
is there are so many authors, Catherine McLean being one of them, uh, Paula Ashwell, or Pauline Ashwell, another, you know, mm-hmm. who should be in every, every issue that you do. But I only have a hundred thousand words and that's like a drop out of an yeah. ocean. And that doesn't count all the male story, stories by male writers who have disappeared and all the other things mm-hmm. that are really important stories to our field that are gone because this stuff doesn't stay in print. Oh, I'm sounding charged up. I'm very, you know. <laughs> no, no, it, it's all important stuff. <laughs> L- let me ask, where did you start your research then? I mean, you've obviously been reading for years. You're aware yourself. But, I mean, I, like I, I've noticed on, on the Women in Science Fiction website, you're talking about reading Lee Brackett, Meredith Klingerman, all kinds, or Mildred Klingerman, all kinds of stuff. So where did you start? How did you start? Well, I had a couple of great things happen. First of all, Dean is a collector, so he had, we have all these old magazines and digests. He kept throwing books at me. Um, I started with Women of Wonder just to review. Um, and I, uh, you know, Eric Leaf Davin has a, I don't know how you say his last name, Davin Davin has a book that was really valuable. And, and I, so I was looking at his nonfiction book. Um, and then, you know, I was kind of organizing myself and I finally decided, okay, I'm going to start with the awards. Um, and just see what I've missed. Start with the Hugos, which started in 53, mm. go to the Nebulas, and I had a whole chart, and I was working off of that. Of course, that doesn't help with the 30s, 40s, and all the stuff predates the awards, but I thought, well, that'll get me started anyway. Yeah. And, um, and as I was going on it, then, um, we got everything finalized through Bain, and Tony has a, uh, Hank Davis with her. And Hank is a longtime science fiction person, and he knows everything. And he just sent me boxes and boxes and boxes of books, which were oh, wonderful. Some of which, you know, we didn't have here, and some of them, you know, we did. But so I just, I just kind of cherry picked and went around, and I did not read nearly as much as I had hoped to read, um, because I ran out of room with the ones that I just knew I wanted. I ran out of room very fast. So. As you could hear from the charge in my voice earlier, this is really becoming a thing for me. And, and um, John Helpers and I are looking at doing a uh, Kickstarter to start doing award volumes, and yeah. you know where we can get old science fiction that shouldn't have gone out of print back in print. You know, these were the nominees for the 1953 Hugo Award, and and that yeah. sort of thing. Get it all back out there. Um, it's going to be a big project. It's going to take a lot of time. So. What were the criteria used to funnel this vast amount of available fiction that's been written by women since the beginning of modern science fiction down to 100,000 words of book? <laughs> oh, yeah, I've, I've been talking to Dean about doing another volume of this, and he's like, this one kicked your butt so hard. Why are you thinking about it? But it was precisely that issue. How do I winnow it down? That brings, I had to do word count. I had to do availability. Um, I'll be honest with you. The thing that breaks my heart the most is Octavia is not in this volume, Octavia Butler, mm-hmm. because I could not work with her estate on yeah. the short fiction. Yeah. Um, and that just, I had not, hadn't even crossed my mind that that would be an issue. I had been warned away of a couple other estates, which I've had yeah. no trouble with, but that one, that was, that was a huge problem. So sometimes it was decided for me. Sometimes it was, uh, available, like there, are, I, I wanted to use, uh, certain stories where I'd say, I actually had a list for Tony and I don't think I used any of them, <laughs> um, from that list. Yeah. Some of them were the, the same old stories that everybody published. And some of them are, um, they were too long. 
Um, so I'm looking at maybe doing a novella volume or something. So, you know, if, I, if the author had a fantastic novella and a really good story. Yeah, to go short, was, yeah. I want it short. shorter. Um, but the other thing is I also looked at influence. If this writer influenced a bunch of other writers, male and female, I wanted them in the volume. Um, if they still have a huge readership now, I wanted them in the volume. I wanted the volume that I'm going to give to those young women writers and say, here are the women that I've listed to you when we were having that conversation. These are the ones that you should know exist. Um, and then a later volume is going to be of people, whether I do it through WMG or whether we do it through Bain or I do it through another publisher, it doesn't matter. But it's going to be of, of the more obscure writers who've been out of print longer. Um, but these are the ones that you should read, even if you hadn't read them. If, if you should have heard of them, at least. And so that was kind of my criteria. And the other criteria was multiple subgenres. I wanted to have all the different subgenres. I wanted time travel. I wanted his alternate history. I wanted science fiction horror. I wanted all of that uh-huh. stuff. Yep. So go, how far back do you go? Because, as you mentioned, once you're in the 50s, and you have reasonably good indexes of magazines. You've got the the Hugo Awards and then the Nebula Awards. And for a year or two, I guess you even had things like the International Fantasy Award. And you get back in the 40s and the 30s, though, you haven't got those guideposts. You've just no. got to find stories. And the, the ones that get... And, and, and another thing that just occurred to me parenthetically, some of these women who did not always publish feminist science fiction sometimes did, because I'm thinking of C.L. Moore. And No Woman Born is still one of the classic gender-bending stories in the field, and uh, and yet and she was... printed a million times. It's been it's, it's the one of hers that gets reprinted a million times. You're absolutely right. You don't see yeah. Doomsday morning yeah, anymore. If you go back far enough, I'm, I was thinking... I was trying to think... I'm, I'm making this up as I go along. The first, the first woman science fiction writer to write for the pulp magazines, I'm going to guess, was named Frances Stevens. No, it was Claire Winger Harris. How, I, what, I just what, what, did this research. I just did it. <laughs> and she, she appeared in July uh, or June 1927 issue of Amazing Stories. Ah. Gertrude Barrows Bennett, who wrote under the name of Francis Stevens, was publishing an Argosy, I think, in 1911. Right. Part of what I did with this volume is I decided to date science fiction, which is bogus oh, and ridiculous from Amazing. Okay. <laughs> the reason I mentioned Frances Stevens is because I know that her novel, serialized novel, The Citadel of Fear, was read by Lovecraft and probably had some influence on him. Yep. But not, starting in 1927 seems entirely reasonable. Although, we do have to admit that Mary Shelley was kind of important back there at one point. Well, the other thing I found out in my research is that I always started with Mary Shelley. No, I mean, there were... Um, there are some people who say, I can't remember her name, Lady, Lady Margaret Cavendish, mm-hmm. I think, uh, in 1660, wrote a utopia, um, book. Um, she was oh, a stop. best-selling writer in the 1600s. And Jack Williamson always went back to the Epic of Gilgamesh and said that, and then you looked at all of the other, you know, there are some Japanese writers that were working yeah. before the birth of Christ that were writing what you could term as science fiction. So, I, that's, I randomly picked amazing stories and started there because otherwise I ended up with a headache. Because I mean, do you go back to? You're making the same argument I've made before, which is that there's a difference between finding things 
six or seven hundred years ago that look like science fiction and finding things that you know science fiction readers actually saw. And you know starting, well, at least with H.G. Wells and Verne, that pretty much all the later science fiction writers knew about them. They didn't necessarily know about Francis Bacon or Tommaso Campanella or that sort of thing. So something that looks like science fiction in the 17th century is not necessarily part of the continuous history of science fiction that we could say starts in 1926 or in 1895. Right. And, and I was cheating by picking 1926, but it was easier. Um, sure. Because that's, that's kind of the way the inside of the field defines it. And I thought, let's just do it that way and go. And even then, you're right. I mean, it was, it was, um, some of the earlier, there are a couple problems. There are many problems with some of the earlier authors. Because I wanted this anthology, remember, I was doing it through Bain for a reason. And I wanted it just for the casual reader to pick it up. The title, by the way, is uh, Women of Futures Past, Classic Stories. We don't want it to say a feminist anthology. We don't want to uh -huh. say stories by women, because that turns off a lot of readers, as many as it attracts. So if we just say, you know, you know, if you have an anthology like Chicks and Chainmail, people of both genders pick it up. They don't yeah. care that it's all about women. But if you say it's going to have an agenda, they're not going to want to listen to it or, or right. read it necessarily. So I didn't want to... I wanted to prevent the people who don't read books that have an agenda. I wanted them to actually buy the book and start reading it. And so um, I had to then think about what I was putting in the volume, especially the early stuff. I mean, there's some wonderful, wonderful, oh, incredibly suspenseful Lee Brackett stories oh, that yeah. are just really and they're set on a far future planet and they are it's a desert planet and it's wonderful and it's got some native people and if you actually look at it she's talking about the middle east and she's talking about it in a way that is really not the way i really think modern audiences should read about <laughs> it um and you know then there were some lovely stories by some other writers whose work um i'm not going to mention right now but they were published in the 50s and some of the language in there especially about say native americans or african americans is not something you mm -hmm. want in a modern volume <laughs> and then you know then there are the stories in which everybody's smoking on the spaceship um it's going to blow the modern reader right out so I had weird and arbitrary criteria for smoking on spaceships, and then I had the language criteria, because certain words in the language have changed. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the biggest one uh, from the 40s is the word queer. Um, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. Well, it, it, it was used in, in, a, in a much broader context then than it is now. And so, you know, I had to be careful. And so I thought, well, since I'm looking to eliminate, I'm trying to make the ocean down into a little drop. We're going to take things that have a lot of that kind of language and just move it out. Rather than apologizing for it in the introduction, yeah, we'll I mean, deal with that later. So, in a, in a sense, you're, you are compiling a slice of the most accessible, most hopefully influential science fiction written by women from the from 1926 to the modern day, roughly. Yes. Um, and you mentioned on you know being unable to get Octavia Butler and having you know, issues with other estates. What what criticism do you most anticipate for the book you've put together? I actually have a paragraph toward the end of the introduction which says, "So what's missing from this volume?" That's the thesis <laughs> statement of the paragraph, and I just follow it with a list. Um, because that's really what I expect the criticism to be. There are, as far 
as I know, there are no writers of color in the volume, which is because I end the volume at the year 2000. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as far as I know, there are no, there are no writers of color. Um, as far as I know, you know, I start this incredibly long list of, there are this, these, you're all, your favorite writer may be missing. There's this, that's going mm-hmm. on, and, and the other thing, and, you know, some writers that I consider exceptionally important to the genre. Um, aren't in there. And it's just, you know, I just have this long list and it's not really an anticipatory list. It's more of an apologetic list. It's like, wow, I'm still, I'm dealing with one drop here. <laughs> and I know what's missing. And most of it is missing. Yeah. Most, yeah, 99.99% of what women have done in the field of science fiction is missing. Because, but it, sounds like, it sounds like you're also excluding Stories that are too familiar. I mean, you, it, it sounds like, for example, No Woman Born might not be in there. It gets anthologized a lot. No, that no only Woman Born is anthologized a lot. Um, so the, the, there, there's some sort of war horses of women science fiction that get hauled out all the time. The war horses of, of feminist science fiction are pretty much well, not in the volume. Um, and, I, and I say that deliberately because there's an Anne McCaffrey story in there, and it's one of her most reprinted stories. But it's got a young male protagonist so um you know so i have a lot of i have not a lot i have some heavily reprinted stories but they're not in the general women in science fiction even the tip tree story that i'm thinking of putting in there is not normally reprinted so Just out of curiosity, yeah. since, you, since you mentioned um mccaffrey do you find that younger writers younger readers and writers for that matter are, are unaware of anything before the Dragonflight series? In other words, does anybody know about the ship who sang anymore? Yes, they do. Um, but they don't think of it as science fiction. That's really? the other problem. Yeah, well, you know, it's that popular fiction stuff. And so there's this, there's that whole other perception of science fiction is this hard to read literature of ideas. And that frustrates me as well. It's like, no, science fiction is space opera and fun stuff and literature of ideas. And- but, 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 but hang on. No, no, no. How, <laughs> how, how can a brain in a can running a starship not be science fiction? I mean, I get how psionic dragons floating mysteriously by the psychological powers isn't fantasy. But I really don't know how I get th- how the brain in a can isn't, isn't science fiction. I'm, I'm kind of like, I can't quite follow that. Well, you know, I think the thing we forget, because we're older, is that this generation grew up with Star Trek and Star Wars and science fiction tropes everywhere. And, you know, there is a a classic Star Trek episode of Brains in a Can and all of this stuff. It's common to them. So some of the stuff that was new and fresh and wonderful to us is... Yeah, it's been done, and so no, I, I get how it's stuff I, see in popular media. I get and how it's familiar. I just don't get how it's not science fiction. But I think there's a perception out there in the world of yeah. non-science fiction people that science fiction is hard to read. And, and there, you can read the ship who sang the whole sequence of stories. It has a romantic arc, and I've met people who read that as a romance novel. Oh, a lot of McCaffrey is very romantic. Yeah. And there is a whole other branch. If we're talking about prejudices in science fiction, there's a whole other branch that says anything that has a romance in it is not science fiction, which is not true. Um, but, yeah. you know, it's there. And so, you know, you, you run into these kind of preconceptions and, and kind of bounce off of them and go, whoa, which is initially what I thought was going on with the women in science fiction. I just thought somebody had a weird preconception. And then I realized that, no, it was an entire generation with a weird preconception. And it's because they couldn't get their 
the information. Or more, or more than an entire generation. I mean, we're talking about a long period of time. I mean, I look at careers that I encountered when I first started reading really actively in the genre in the early 80s. I and mean, I was reading from when I was six or seven, but really actively in the eight, around then. And I think they've, they've, they've just disappeared from discussion. Or they're backgrounded in some kind of way. So C.J. Cherry writes 60, 70 novels, but doesn't get a Sifra Grant mastership which is a particular bugbear of mine. Uh, Catherine Kurtz is out there, you know, sort of working epic fantasy through in the 80s, but disappears off, off the face, face of the earth and is discussed by nobody in any meaningful way. It's my own f- f- feeling that for a variety of reasons, Marion Bradley's being disappeared right now, as, as hard yeah. as we can. Um, I mean, with a little bit of justification, but really n- not so much, because I think you should be able to make some kind of differenti- differentiation. Let me ask, this is one book. It's 100,000 words. It can't be more than 15 or 16 stories. It's 12. 12. Oh. What do you do next? Well, I'm hoping to do a women in fantasy volume. And as I said, then we're hoping to do, John and I are hoping to do Kickstarters to do the um, anthology, you know, the, the awards anthologies. And as I've been doing this, this particular volume, I'm coming up with ideas for more volumes, and we'll see where it comes from, from Bain. But um, I discovered that in the 70s, there was a preconception against uh, women on both sides, from both genders, against women writing stories that were what I'm calling hearth and home stories. They were set on the on the home front. What they were called in the 50s by Blish, by James Blish, are wet diaper stories. And so if you understand the whole communism thing where they had red diaper babies you have wet diaper science fiction mm-hmm. stories um written by women in fact there's a lovely quote that i found from james blush where he he talks about the women who are writing for fnsf in the yep. 50s including shirley jackson and mildred Klingerman and all of yes. them and he said he called them a gaggle of um thoughtless housewives um yep. And, um, you know, there were, there were all these, there were really wonderful subversive stories about things that were not quite right in, in, um, going on in the hearth and home. They were kind of slipstreamy. Roselle George Brown is one of them. She yeah. wrote a story called Carpool that I just find I'd never read before. It is. Um, and so I'm thinking, you know, I, I want to do a hearth and home thing. Again, it would have Lee Brackett. She wrote some of the most amazing stuff in the hearth and home. A lot of places, a lot of people never reprinted, uh, Zena Henderson because yeah. they felt she was too sentimental. I was gonna, she was the next one was to ask how many people know her these days. Um, yeah, I mean, we a lot of, go ahead. I, I was going to say, uh, one of the issues when I was, I did this, uh, two-volume collection for the Library of America a couple of years ago, would love to have had Zena Henderson in it, except there was this other odd thing that happened in the 50s, where novels were not novels. They were collections of short stories loosely yes. linked together. Uh, and and Zena Henderson was basically always a short story writer, even though you know, the books were fix-ups. Uh, and that, that became a problem not just with women writers, but with a lot of writers in general. Uh, so I think one of the reasons that somebody like Zena Henderson disappears is that that's a form of a book that people just aren't familiar with anymore. The short well, stories yeah. as a novel. But you also look at some of the critical literature that was written uh, as they were trying to revive women that were coming coming through. And, you know, they yeah. they said it, domestic tales were not worthwhile. And I'm like, well, no, domestic tales really are. And, and Zenda Henderson, there was a period when I came into science fiction was in the 70s. 
Um, mm-hmm. There was quite a period of time in that uh, thing that was going on where if it was emotional, if it was about romance, if it was about family, it really wasn't yeah. worthwhile science fiction. That went away by the 90s, but it was really strong in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, I guess I could see that. I, I know I, you were talking about Damon Knight and English, and I know that, uh, that Judith Merrill came under some of that flack for The Shadow on the Hearth for her uh, nuclear war novel because it was a novel about a housewife and a family and, and not about guys and bombers. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes just even having a romance in the volume made it that way, um, mm. you know, that it was not as good a book because it had a love interest and it kind of focused on that or, you know, focused on the children. Um, so there was all of that that was going on too. Exactly. Is there a dialogue around this book and this area that, I don't know, that we're not ready to have or that we don't want to have. Or uh, What I'm thinking is this morning on themarysue.com, they published a link to a review of a book called Dark Beyond the Stars, which is a space opera anthology, all written by women. And the male reviewer who reviewed it said, here is a book that proves that women cannot write science fiction. And, this is, <laughs> and now, I mean, at all, women just cannot do it. And... Apart from the fact you want to take this reviewer out and shake them, you know, obviously this kind of attitude is just as fresh today as it ever was, despite everything else. It's on both sides. I mean, Hmm. gender issues, human beings are human beings. And we have, you know, men who don't get along with women and women who don't get along with men. When I was, I was very active in the feminist community in Madison, Wisconsin in the late seventies, um, and did a lot of, a lot of things. And, one of the things that actually drove me out of part of it was they were going to have some rally, and I don't remember where, but it was at the Capitol Square, but I don't remember why. And some woman uh, asked one of the women involved if uh, she could bring her infant son to the meeting. And I was there when the woman who was in charge turned to her and said, no, his penis will give off bad vibes. And she was serious. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there are these people on both sides. There are the, the. I actually had somebody when I became the editor of FNSF, a man, write me a letter, sign his name, and tell me I couldn't edit because I didn't have a penis, and he was very serious. So you know, you, you got to dismiss the outliers. Um, but yes, there are going to be that whole side of things, and then there are all these wonderful people who they like, whether it's written by a man, whether it's written by a woman, whether it's written by somebody tra- transgender or. African American or white, they're just going to pick it up. If it's a good story, they're going to read it. And, you know, those are the people we should be working for. And essentially, when I'm trying to bring this stuff back into print, what I'm hoping for is that those people, the people I will, who will never write a review, the people who will just hand it to their best friend and say, wow, there's a great story in here you need to read. Those are the people I'm putting it together for. And obviously, as you've said, there's a deliberate statement, if you like, in choosing Bain as the publisher. And I say that because they are an adventure fiction publisher more than anything from from, as, from an external point of view. When I, when I look at it, that's what I'd say. They publish adventure science fiction, adventure fantasy more than anything else. And they appear to have the most traditional core audience, and at least superficially from the exterior, the most male audience. So is, is that a deliberate thing as well, that you're thinking, well, this is also a book that's talking to that group specifically? No, I, I don't think they do have a deliberately male audience, considering that Lois has been publishing with them for 30 years. Um, yeah. I think they have a very balanced 
by gender audience. Actually, no, I, I wasn't thinking of, I was thinking of their traditional science fiction audience in that sense. I was thinking about all the stuff they do, marketing into the center yeah. of the field, male and female. But really, honestly, I, I wanted to work with yeah. Tony on this because yeah. I knew she would be as passionate about this project as I was. Sure. I, I feel like I should say just quickly as a point of clarification, I don't mean their author roster or their own staff or anything like that. I just mean what's perceived to be the Bane readership, the people who are on the Bane bar chatting, all that kind of thing. They, to, when I hear them described as a group, they are a very traditional, primarily male-sounding group. I don't think so. Um, I think they are very traditional, and I think they're in their in their likes and dislikes of science fiction. And I do think there are a lot of very vocal males on that site. But the audience that I'm familiar with is male and female sure. pretty much equally through Bane. Um, but they are very classic science fiction audience. They have very strict ideas about... They don't really want to see avant-garde science fiction. Yeah. That's not what they're reading for. They're reading uh, They're reading for their stories. They're reading for good characters. They're reading for great writing. But they don't really care you know, if it's, if it's about an amoeba in a room not doing anything yeah. um, that's beautifully written. That's not the audience for them. So they really want a particular thing. And the other thing I wanted with this, and I knew Bane would do it, is I wanted, I didn't want this to look like a, uh, uh, something that was going to be assigned in your English class. I wanted right. a cover on there. Somebody actually said on Charlie Strauss's website when we were talking about this whole thing, they said, oh, is Bane going to put a wildly inappropriate cover on it? And I said, I hope so. I really <laughs> hope so. <laughs> I, I don't know because I mean, like this is inappropriate. And there's inappropriate. There's a woman out there floating in the stars, and there's a woman uh, out there floating in the stars wearing a chainmail bikini. I want the chainmail bikini. <laughs> I really do. I want that. <laughs> Even allowing for the explosive decompression factor, and <laughs> I didn't say I wanted to be floating around in the chainmail bikini, but I really would love to have that kind of a cover. Um, on this book, I, I want it to be a fun book, not necessarily homework. Yeah. And obviously, you've not completely finalized the table of contents yet. No, when, I'm not going to announce what it's all what's all in it when I do finalize it. Well, well because uh, I don't want people going out and reading it. I want I want them to read the book rather than I'll, argue I'll with that front. Other, you know, other stories. So, when what? will the book be out, roughly? Oh, right. You're from right. Sorry, you dropped that right there. What one is that? Sorry, a year, a year from now. A year from now. September of twenty-sixteen. A year okay. from now. Okay. Well, and the website will be will be continuing, I presume. Yes, the website's going to continue, and I'm thinking I'm going to be doing a lot of guest blogs. There's a lot of people who who've written about this in the past. A lot of people who are writing about it now. What actually gave me the idea is I, we did a women in science fiction story bundle uh, with uh -huh. me and Vonda McIntyre and Judy Tarr and all of everybody. It was really wonderful, and I put guest blogs up there on the women in science fiction site. And Judy Tarr, Judith Tarr, wrote an a wonderful little essay about how she always wanted to be a science fiction writer. That's why she became a writer and she got put in a little box as a fantasy writer and a historical fantasy writer. And she was very uh -huh. frustrated. Um, and she's been doing a lot of her own publishing of science fiction and very happy. And I thought, you know, we need space for essays like that. She wasn't put in that box because she was a woman. She was just put in that box because that's what she published first. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I'm what? giving space for women to write about 
what inspired them, who they read. Um, and eventually I'm going to open it up to guys, too. What, what were your favorite writers? But for the first few guest blogs, it's going to be mostly women. And then on there, I'm going to have, you know, who, who do you think is an essential woman to read? Who do you, who inspired you? Who got you going? Yeah. What did what story do you love the most? That kind of stuff. Excellent. Okay. Well, we shall look forward to seeing the book when it comes out. We shall keep an eye on the website. We've kind of got through an hour, so thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank feeling. you guys for the conversation. It's been fun. It's been really good. And uh, obviously this conversation will be up live within, within the next day or so, but I look forward to maybe getting to talk to you again in the future about women in science fiction, or maybe close to the time when the book comes out, and to see what else you're doing in the area. That would be okay. great. I would enjoy that very much. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And until then, Gary, I will talk to you next week.